0: Last week we talked about the, the eternal gospel. Course, there's a verse I found that I didn't read last week that I'd like to point out. Um, the, when we talked about the Matzeroth or the, the Zodiac as it's called now. Um, there's a verse, I'm going to write this down, Psalm 147.4. And I just thought this was kind of neat. Because we're going to be talking about numbers tonight. I thought about calling this study Numbers. I actually did. And then, uh, then I changed it because I, I like to fiddle with names. So we call it. We're calling this the Alpha and the Tau. And you're on. the, Where's the Omega? Well, we've talked about this a while back, sort of. Does anyone remember what Tau means? No, no. Uh, uh, what is it? Sorority members or fraternity members in here? No Taus. Okay. So Tau means end, just like Omega. It's just the Hebrew form of end. So Alpha Greek. Tau, Hebrew, so beginning and the end, so there it is, but we'll talk about that, why I brought both of those in there, so we're going to be talking about numbers though, because alpha technically means the first or one, Um, in another way it doesn't, so we'll talk about that, so again, uh, 147.4, Psalm 147.4 says, he counts the number of the stars, he gives names to all of them. Um, has anyone in here ever heard of the Hubble Deep Field or the James Webb Deep Field photos? Does anyone know what the James Webb Telescope is? No one? Okay. Yeah, you've got, got a few shaking, got a, got a few nerds out there, that's okay. Very easy to get. James Webb Space Telescope is a telescope that was launched, was launched a while back, several years ago, but it only recently was deployed and start taking pictures now. But What it's designed to do is, it's it actually, uh, so we've got, Hubble, you know what Hubble is, right? Yep. So it orbits, here's Earth, here's the Moon. Hubble orbits Earth and just takes pictures of space. When it does, it goes around. James Webb sits over here on the other side of the Moon in the, Earth sh- in the Moon's shadow and points out to space with no issues from Earth, no interference from Earth, no uh, light from Earth reflection off the off earth or anything like that and it takes it, it focuses on the infrared spectrum so it sees further out and of course this has nothing to do with what we're about to talk about but um, uh, it, it kind of does but um, what they expected to see what the secular scientists, scientists expected to see was you know that the uh, everyone give up on this if you if you want to try again it's right here no one figured it out okay um, So what they expected to see, because if you believe in the Big Bang Theory, well the Big Bang Theory does teach us one thing, is that it confirms that there was a beginning. Because before that everyone thought the universe just existed forever and the earth was the beginning. Well the Big Bang Theory in a way kind of confirms, oh there actually was a beginning at one point of the universe. So not that that's how it happened, but um, what they expected to see were these galaxies that were formed. but not. Quite formed yet, young galaxies, big globs of stars, not really, not really anything uniform like we see now. Well, the further out they further out they see, they see mature galaxies everywhere, big, huge galaxies that are very old. You know, just you know we don't really know how old they are, but um, so it's changing their view of really everything because we didn't really expect to see that. So some of us are like, well believer you kind of it's kind of obvious but um anyway if you want to check out the pictures that thing said there's one called the deep field hubble took one or took several actually what it did was it took a picture of an area of space that was just black nothing there it just opened if you're a photographer and you open the shutter it just lets light in you've know, got photographers here you let more light in the longer the shutters open well if you're taking pictures of stars one of the most difficult and frustrating things is to keep it still and ma- and lined up with the with the sky. Well, really expensive cameras, telescopes can do that. Um, so they kept this little tiny, if you, if you held out your hand at arm's length and held out a grain of sand, that's about how big this little dot was. And they, held a, they kept the lens open and if you want to just Google it sometime, Hubble Deep Field or, Deep, or James Webb Deep Field. Um, so if you don't, just so you don't forget, it's pretty cool. Um, you see, in this little tiny photo, uh, literally thousands of galaxies. Each galaxy has millions if not billions of stars in it. And everywhere you look in the sky that this thing is pointed out, in the sky, it just sees galaxies everywhere. Just, just trillions and trillions, which is a ridiculous number, but just all over the sky. So, Psalm Psalm 147.4, he counts the number of the stars big number, uh, he gives names to all of them. So that just kind of, as knowing how many stars are out there, and you really, uh, can't really fathom that, um, That's just kind of blows my mind. So anyway, so our goals for this session are to have an understanding of the significance of numerical values in scripture, or what's called biblical numerology, study of numbers. If you just say numerology, you might get into some pretty weird things on the internet. Um, that's the study of numbers non-biblically, and it gets really dark and weird. So um, we're talking about biblical numerology, so that word needs to be there. We're going to talk about how Jesus Christ is the first and the last, which we've been talking about in Revelation on Sunday morning, of course, we're going to know that, or the one and the final number, because there really isn't a final number either way. You know, infinite goes both ways and it never stops. I had that conversation with my boys, I love you, and, you know, I love you, I love you too, I love you four, I love you infinity, I love you infinity times infinity. Well uh, I, and then my son says, I love you absolute infinity. I'm like, okay, well I love you that plus one. And it just keeps going because there really is no end. Once you get into infinity, you can't really go beyond that. So anyway, um, and we're going to number three, talk about a very controversial topic. And I'm not here to push ideas or try to make you believe something. I don't, have not done that once. I don't want you to believe anything I tell you. I want you to look at up yourself. So we're going to talk about are there hidden messages in the Bible. And if so, why? So if there are hidden messages, why are they there? If there, if, if there aren't, well, fine. Well, I'm going to talk about some of these, these things, that um, these, some of these uh, factual <coughs> Uh, artifacts of the Hebrew language that are very fascinating. And if, you're, if you know anything about statistics, you'll know that this is... It, it, it will blow your mind a little bit. And, uh, but the, the cool thing is, is that it just glorifies God. So it just proves... It just validates him even more. I mean, anyway. Okay, so a reminder before we go on. There is no such thing as coincidence. In the, in the without God's providential arrangement of circumstances way... So we might think, well, that was a little coincidence. That, but God didn't know that. God knew that was going to happen. Yeah, God is not surprised by anything. So, again, Proverbs 16:33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Not some decisions, every decision. There's no such thing as coincidence. And Jesus is in all the scriptures. We've been going over that every week. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the passages of scriptures about himself. In, all, in the scroll of the book it is written about me. That's Hebrews. You examine the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life. It is those very scriptures that testify about me. And there is basically no scripture that doesn't somehow involve Jesus. So, um, so now we're going to talk about Numbers, but the actual book. So if you want to turn to Numbers chapter 2, you can. I'm not going to read it all. Um, I'm not going to read really any of it, I'm just going to kind of refer back to it, but uh, if you want to refer to some of these pictures in the back, I'm going to start looking at some of those pictures and I'll talk about what these mean. So, this is, uh, this is kind of a fun little chapter because it's basically when God tells the Israelites to do something so that they can count the number of men they have for the military. That's really all it's about. So, <clears throat> who is numbered? The men of Israel for military purposes. So there's a lot of numbers in this chapter. <clears throat> you know, I'm just going to go ahead and get my my Bible app out. I'm going to actually read a little bit of it, but not, not tons of it because we don't have that much time. Alright, Numbers chapter 2. Alright, Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp. Each by his own standard or symbol, the tribal symbol basically. With the banners of their fathers, households, they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Okay, camp of meeting. What is the camp of meeting? Anyone tell me? Tabernacle. Tabernacle. There it goes again. The jumping racer. <laughs> promise on the <laughs> purpose. Okay. So, you got the tents of meeting right here. And you got the, after the tabernacle in the middle. You got the stuff out here. And you got little tent posts and things holding up. Anyways, it's sitting right there. So, that's the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. We talked about that some time back. All right, so it says those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be the standard of the camp of Judah. So what it starts doing is basically God's saying, you tribes go here, you tribes go here, you tribes go here, you tribes go here. Okay? And there's numbers there. 74,600 um, of uh, the sons of Judah, Nashon, the son of Amenadab, Amenadab and his army, even their number been seventy-four six thousand. those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. And it just keeps going. So, who is the camp surrounding, or what is the camp surrounding the tabernacle? If you can put tent of meeting. Um, so, what is the shape of the tabernacle? In the Exodus 25:27, basically, it indicates by the measurements that it's a rectangle. Okay. So I made a, that's kind of a rectangle, guess. Yeah. Sure. It's a rectangle. So, what cardinal directions are specified? Anyone, what cardinal directions? Anyone know? Northeast, south, and west. Alright, just write northeast, southwest, or north, south, east, and west. Or east, south, west, north. Or east, or, or, yeah. (laughs) Um, So what are intercardinal directions? Northeast, southeast, right right in between. So, when God says, camp on the east side, from a rabbinical perspective, or like if you're a Jewish rabbi, or an Israelite, you're following the Word of God, does that mean you can go northeast? No, you're going to be very strict. That's how they are with the Scripture. That's how everyone should be with the Scripture. So, cardinal directions are not allowed. We're going to say no from a rabbinical perspective. And if you, so what I did was I took Microsoft Excel, everyone's favorite uh, program for, you know, just about everything. And these are screenshots I took, and if you take the, these are the actual numbers, um, I made every little box 100. So I don't, it doesn't really say how far apart they can, but it tells them, you know, northeast, southwest, don't go to the, nor- the corners, basically. And once you start zooming out, now I did make that square in the middle on 11-2, but it might be slightly rectangular, maybe not. It's not a big deal, but but yeah, I messed up there. So it's not a big deal, it's gonna, not gonna change anything. But if you notice, what does it, it form in the, it forms a cross, so from the air, from the mountaintops nearby, um, some of the people there would see this large cross on the ground, so um, there's a 11-6 is kind of cool because it kind of gives you that, that view of what it would actually probably look like um, because they were specifically told where to camp and in what side and what um, why? I don't know, but it does form a cross when you add all those numbers up because then there's more on the side of Judah than all the others. And it just happens to form a cross. You know, what a coincidence. So it's kind of cool that we get a symbol of the uh, manner of death in which our Savior is going to go through in the book of Numbers. Um, so if you want to write there, what is laid out in the desert by God's reign cross? What are the implications of this? Well, if it's true, if it... If it's implied, if it's intended to be a cross, and we know that God's plan has always existed, which means the cross wasn't thought of by the um, Persians, and then that oh now we know what, now God knows what a cross is. You know, God's always know what a cross is. He knew His Son was going to die on a cross. So did He do this on purpose? I don't know. It's kind of neat. If He did, then that implies that the New Testament gospel is right here in a numbering of the military uh, of Israel. So kind of kind of interesting. <coughs> so. Any questions before we move on? That was just a quick. Since we're since we're talking about numbers, I thought we talked about something from the book of numbers. So, okay, so we're going to move on to the number one and its significance in the Bible. So, alpha and tau. Um, so alpha and aleph actually mean one in Hebrew and Greek, or Greek and Hebrew. So alpha and omega are the first and. Well, Jesus refers to himself as the alpha and omega in Revelation. Or the first and the last, or the beginning and the end. And as we talked last week, there really isn't a set. I don't know why I drew this and didn't draw the whole thing, but you have a picture of it. So as we talked last week, you know, you have a beginning and you have an end of something. I mean, it stops there, stops there. Well, Jesus doesn't have a beginning and an end, but that's really the only way we can describe him. So you could really describe it as... infinity in both directions. But we don't consider, you know, God's obviously not in a timeline with us. He's outside of that. You know, he can see all of history at the same time. You know, that's not, he's not limited to, or constrained to our reality as we experience time going from now to future to past. He's able to experience all of that. One might argue that it's already all happened, and we're just in this one little part of it. You see what I'm saying? It's kind of makes, makes your head hurt a little bit, but um, the past has happened. We're experiencing now, and the future has already been laid out by God. So one might say, well, all of this has happened. We're just experiencing this part, but I won't go with We won't want to get in that rabbit hole, so... Alright, so Jesus refers to himself as Alpha and Omega in Revelation. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. Aleph and Tau are the first and last letters in the Hebrew alphabet. That gives us an interesting, we talked about this briefly at the beginning of the study. Um, I think it might have been in the first or second session. Um, But here's an actual picture. I, I took a picture of this from one of the apps I used to give me kind of the English laid out there with the Hebrew. And then the phonetic form of it. <clears throat> in Hebrew, the letters aleph and tau are laid out like that. So right to left, that that little letter on the right is the aleph. looks like an X. So anywhere in the Bible you see a, it's an act kind of sound. And it's also the number one. So uh, if you read the Bible in Hebrew, you'll see that an aleph on verse, you could say verse one, the first line. And then it, down the side of every um, line of Hebrew text is and A B C or in, well, it's like the Hebrew, the Hebrew ABCs, basically. So in number, so it's it's a basically there's a numerical value assigned to every letter. That's that happens in Greek as well. So and we kind of do it in English too. If you notice the uh, little circle there, can you all see that? Is it? I didn't know how the copies came out. So yeah, you know, I can see it. Yeah. Um. So in Hebrew, the letters Aleph and Tau are that the little aleph and the tau going from right to left, it can be used to indicate a grammatical pun. So what does that mean? Well, <coughs> notice where it says here, in the from right to left, of course, the number, you see the number 1 on the right, that's just there to show the verse number. But um, it says, in the beginning, of course, created, God God created um, the heavens and the earth. Well, sometimes that little connector there is, is put there for grammatical reasons. But if you notice, if you say, in the beginning God, the beginning and the end, created the heavens and the earth. And of course, we know who created the heavens and the earth. The, the Trinity did. So, if you, if you kind it's kind of a subtle little thing in the Hebrew here, but it happens in some pretty interesting places. There's another one in Zechariah <clears> 10. <throat> and of course, this is a prophetic of Jesus' second coming. They will look on him who they have pierced, and if, or look on me who they have pierced. If you notice, it says... It says, they, uh, they, will, they will look on me, the aleph and the tau, or the beginning and the end, or you could say the alpha and the omega, whom they pierced. So it's kind of a, what a coincidence type thing that they're in these. There's, a, there's several of these too. Um, I just wanted to throw these two out there because it's, it's pretty neat. Um, just little subtleties in the Hebrew. And If this makes you want to learn Hebrew, awesome. It's a fun language. Um, it's really hard to read sometimes because there's no spaces. The spaces are here for us, to help us. The little dots and the symbols are not there originally. You just kind of had to know how to say it, say these words. Um, and again, there's no spaces, so it's kind of challenging to read at times. But <clears throat> so Jesus is the beginning and the end. It's really hard to comprehend that as humans because we know of what a beginning is and an end is. We don't really know what it means to we know what it means, but it's kind of hard to you know grasp that. Infinite is the next word. Difficult to explain, but comprehend in human terms, or, or comprehend in human terms. So the beginning and the end, and then infinite. Jesus is infinite. And he is everything, all, and should be our number one priority. So there's my little pun there for the number one. <clears throat> Pretty punny, I must say. Beginning and end, infinite and everything and all, should be our number Jesus should be our number one. Jesus is number one. Number one. All right. <clears throat> so, how um, should He be our priority? Well, the great commandment, of course, Matthew 22, 35 through 40 I tell my kids this every day. Um, when we go to school, we're gonna we're gonna love God. And how do we do that? Well, we love people. We do what He says. So, love God and love people. I did a study on this uh, back in I think it was August, July or August. Uh, for the group. And uh, that was fun. But yeah, it's a, it's a great little passage. Lots there. Kind of hard to love people when they treat us like they do, but mm-hmm. that's what we're supposed to do. <clears throat> Alright, so moving on The number two. The Two is very significant in the Scripture too. You'll see two as well. Um, two witnesses verify the truth of a legal matter, according to Deuteronomy 17.6. It says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses he who is to die shall be put to death he shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness so um... and then of course when you say two witnesses you immediately go right forward to revelation and so two witnesses will prophesy during the great tribulation period we were talking about this before the class even started uh, revelation eleven six it could be elijah and moses it could be we were talking about it could be elijah and enoch um, because technically they didn't... well, Moses died, but Enoch didn't. So is he going to ever die physically? Well maybe that's when he dies when the two witnesses die, who knows. But um, the passage in Revelation 11:6 is what, it, what we were trying to find. It says, uh, "They shall have power over the waters to turn them into blood." And strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And right before that, it says, uh, the, These have the power to shut up the sky so no rain will fall during the days of their prophesying. So, who knows who it's going to be? We'll find out one of these days. It's also thought that it's Moses and Elijah because they showed up at the Transfiguration. So, who knows? Um, behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, with Jesus. And uh, of course, Peter opens his mouth, says something weird. I'm sure it gets that look. Um, he does that a lot, but um, and in biblical numerology, the number two conveys a union. And what do we think of when we say union? Yeah. Marriage, right? <clears throat> For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. My eight-year-old is already asking me about marriage, and yeah, yeah not fun. So. <laughs> Kid, you got like a long time, don't worry about that it's like, does your wedding have to have a lot of people? Yeah, it doesn't have to. It's like, well, I don't want to have a lot of people, so I'm not going to get married now. Okay. I'll talk to you in 20 years or so. All right, so number three. <clears throat> there are three persons of the Godhead, or Trinity. We're just going to talk about where some of these numbers appear a lot, and, uh, <laughs> and kind of what they seem to, see to, seem to emphasize or... or uh, Point to three individuals witnessed the transfiguration. Does anyone know who they were? God's little uh, inner circle. I heard someone once say that God had a Jesus had a staff meeting with his inner circle, and it's who is it? Peter James and John, Peter, James, and John right? Or Simon James and John? He's not named Peter yet. Well, I don't know if was named Peter by that time. Um, three gifts, three types of gifts were presented to Jesus at his birth. Of course, we all know what those were from the Christmas stories. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold speaks of Jesus' deity. And I spell, I spell that wrong every time I type it. It's D-E-I-T-Y, not I-E. Yeah. No <laughs> I know. Everyone's spelled it wrong, didn't you? I told GIF. Every time I type it, it's wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, Frankincense is a spice used in priestly duties. So he speaks of his deity. He's God. He's our priest. And myrrh, of course, embalming ointment signifying death. There's a, I want to say theory. I hate that word, but uh, I don't like that word. I don't like that. I don't like the word theory but there's an idea that jesus and jonah were dead that jonah was also dead in the belly of the fish for three days and that he was resurrected and actually came back to life by by god himself because if you read some of the text it's as if he went to sheol and uh or the place of the dead and uh maybe he was actually resurrected just like jesus will be in the future to him so whether or not he was doesn't really matter it's just kind of interesting um one of the pastors I talked to about this says, no, he was praying, and dead people can't pray. So, like, well, they go, I'm sure they pray if they go to, you know, depending on where they go, but um, both places maybe they should pray. But anyway, that's just one of those conversations you have, and you just kind of laugh about it, and we will find out one of these days. So Jesus and Jonah were dead, quote unquote, for three days and three nights before the resurrection. Of course, Jesus compares himself to Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so must the son of man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So whether or not Jonah actually died, it's not a big deal. I really don't know. I obviously don't know either way, no one really does, but it doesn't, I don't obsess about it. So it's just kind of interesting. In biblical numerology, the number three represents, you could say, completeness, or the triune or three nature of three of God, the triune nature of God. T-R-I-U-N-E. I'll spell it for you, write it down. Wrong. The triune nature of God or completeness. Anyone else think of any threes in the Bible? By the way, happy Passover. Three on the cross. Three days Passover. Well, last night. Actually just it's now Thursday on the Hebrew calendar, so but yeah. Passover is basically, what, what you say, the three on the cross? The cross the three on the cross, there you go. Three matzahs, which of course point? to three on the cross. I um, the, the huh. what was it, the, like the uh, dispensation, like the age of the yeah, Gentile, yeah, yeah. age of the Jew, age of the church. There you go, there's three, yeah. Let's see, what else? Abraham. Three days. Oh yeah, three he took you walked three days with, with his son, with Isaac to the mountain. And we talked about that how in a way that kinda of signifies that to him his son was already dead for three. Has anyone seen that movie yet? His only son? We were gonna see it this week, we haven't got to yet. Um Uh so yeah, threes, twos, ones. Six is another number that's very significant. There are fours and fives, but we don't have all the time in the world. So Um, We'll just talk about the most common ones. So six is one less than seven, any math majors in here figure that out in advance? Mm -hmm. One less than seven, which has an idea of being incomplete, because seven is complete. We'll get to that after six, obviously. Man was created on the sixth day and was appointed six days of work, unless you're in IT and you work every minute of every day. Or have kids. <laughs> or whatever you do. You probably work every day. So 666 emphasizes man. Like, 6 would be man, and 666 is like man. You know, it really emphasizes. And appears to represent the very best system of governance that mankind can develop that excludes God. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting, if you turn to 1 Kings 10 14, how many know what Solomon's salary was? <laughs> six hundred and sixty-six talents of gold. Yeah, he was a very, you know, say the word manly. He was a very fleshly person. He might have been manly. I don't know. He's got that many wives. He's got that many wives. <laughs> of course, he could have ordered them to be. You know. Anyway, uh, so in biblical numerology, the number six represents incompleteness or imperfection or man, mankind. I'm not excluding women. Everyone on the internet. Don't leave bad comments. Incompleteness, imperfection, or mankind, or man. No. Alright. <clears throat> Seven. The sevenfold structure of the Bible is referred to as the heptatic structure. H-E-P-T-A-D-I-C. If I say heptatic, does that make does that sound like any other words you think of? Any geometry people in here, hepta, deca, deedrin, I don't know, there's the shapes, you know. Anyway, there's hepta in there. My son came home from school telling me about hepta something, and I was like, that means seven, right? Yep, okay. So, heptatic structure means that the Bible has a structure of sevens. How many of you have noticed that there's sevens in the Bible? Okay, good, that was, that was, that was kind of a sarcastic question, but yeah, sevens are all through the Bible. Um, so we're going to start this little section on 7 with the genealogy of Jesus and I'm going to read off a bunch of stuff you don't, have to, don't, please don't write this down because you'll be you're, 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 you'll be here all night so I have a couple of sources for this um, this guy named Ivan Panin he's got a really interesting history he died a while back but I want to say it was the 40's or 50's maybe but uh, maybe later than that but he wrote a book called Bible Numerics and he spent like 50 years going through the Bible and figuring out and finding all these number patterns. And there's tons of them. Like I think he had 50,000 examples or more. And he died. He basically obsessed about it so much that he ended up just ruining his health and he died uh, because of that. So, but one, some of the things he found out about the genealogy of Jesus is that everything is a multiple of seven in it. So I want you to go home and try to write a little story or a genealogy of your own if you want, if you can make up names um, and try to match this criteria and see if it's easy so you have to have, this is in the Greek by the way, so if you want to do it in English that's fine but in the Greek there are exactly 72 Greek vocabulary words Okay. there are exactly 56 nouns or an mul- exact multiple of seven your, um, the word the has to appear in exact multiple of seven is it getting harder now? if you were, if you were to go home and do this yourself um, the number, uh, let's see the main pa- main sections of the passage, verses one through eleven and twelve through seventeen. The number of Greek vocabulary used is an exact multiple of seven. You're not writing all this down, are you? Okay, <laughs> please don't write all this. Down. Um, of these words, the number of those beginning with a vowel is exactly a multiple of seven or twenty-eight. The number of words beginning with a consonant is exact multiple of seven. The total number of letters in the words is an exact number of seven. Or multiple of seven. The number of vowels um, among these letters is an exact multiple of seven. Is it getting difficult now to write? You want to write something and meet all these constraints Um, of the words. The number of words which occur more more than once is an exact multiple of seven. The number of words exact occurring only once is a number of seven fourteen. The number of words which occur only one form is a multiple of seven. The number of words appearing more than one form is seven. The number of uh, Greek vocabulary words, which are nouns, is an exact multiple of seven. I'm not done yet, by the way. The number of words uh, that are not nouns is an exact multiple of seven. The number of names used is a multiple of seven. The number of male names is a multiple of seven. The, these names occur exact exactly 56 times, which is a multiple of seven. The number which are not male names is seven. There are 3 women mentioned in this entire passage. Their names all in the Greek equal and multiple of 7. Um, the number of compound names. and said so you get you get the idea here. There's a lot of these, right? So if you were to go home and try to write something, write a story and everything like this kind of meet together, you can see what kind of trouble the Holy Spirit went to to make this work out, you see? So when someone says that the Bible was written by people only and then you go, wait a minute, how could they have done this? Well this means that the uh, well we'll get to that in a second. Um, the how could we have, how could man have done this sort of thing? So I couldn't have done this by myself. So um, so now we're gonna move on to something called gametria. Does anyone know what that means? That simply means that a letter has a numerical value. So if we want to do it in English, how many did that in English like school? Like A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, so on and so forth. That that is a, a phenomena with Greek and uh, or a characteristic, I should say, of those two languages, Greek and Hebrew, and many languages. That's how they get their numbers or the letters of the alphabet. So the these words add up to a value, of course, of an exact multiple of seven. And of course, if you change one letter in these, it, it wouldn't work. So the what does that mean? Um, that means the Bible had to have been given to these people, like letter by letter. If you think about it, of course, they wrote. It. I'm sure they didn't go. Okay, what's the next letter? What's the next? I mean, they might have it. I don't know, but uh, but obviously the Holy Spirit worked it out this way. In a way. I'm not saying that they did that, but um, it's it's just amazing how that stuff works. So, um, so if let's say Matthew, this genealogy, let's say he wrote this himself and did all this math himself and you know calculated all this stuff. Well, he that means he had to have written. Um, oh wait, no. Let me go back. Back up. So there are in the book of Matthew in this passage. There are words used in the Greek that are not used anywhere else in any other book. Okay, that's kind of hard for us to really imagine in English because there's really, yeah, I mean, you know, there's some words you can kind of skip over, but there are 42 words, um, or I'm sorry, there are words that that exist in Matthew that, that that don't exist anywhere else in the other in the other books. So what I was saying was Matthew had to have been written what? That means he had to have went through Mark, Luke, and John and said, okay, I can't use those words. But the same thing happens in Mark. Okay, there's also words in Mark that are not used in any of the other books. Same thing happens in Luke. Okay, there are words in Luke that Luke wrote Luke with that don't occur in Matthew, Mark, or John. Same thing happens in John. And guess what? It happens in every book of the New Testament. There's this weird structure. There's these things that happen where some words are used and aren't used in any other books, and then they, a certain amount of times, and then they, so, it, so you'd have to say, well, Matthew must have been written last. Okay, Mark must have been, okay, every book must have been written last. You see what I'm saying? So, um, so if, if you're into Greek, I'm, I'm kind of studying it. I'm, I'm better at Hebrew than I am at Greek, but, there's a lot of stuff you can do with Greek, a lot more than English, and um, this would have taken a lot of work by people to contrive this. So, all right. So, moving past that, we're gonna. I'm gonna go over. Uh, do you have the statistical probability of chance on there? Yes. Sheet? Okay. This kind of shows you how statistics works. So, if these constraints that the genealogy of Matthew or, or Jesus in the book of Matthew. Um, if you wanted to say what, the, what are the odds of this happening by chance, there's your, your numbers. So of all these constraints, I think I listed 24 of them. Yeah. So if you want to say, okay, well, let's try to meet three of these constraints. Well, the odds of that happening by chance, you just take 7 to the third power, and you get one 343 odds. On so if you, you know, take a, a jar of coins that has 343 coins in it and you pick one out, that's your odds of getting the right coin. So add, add the do the 24 constraints, you can tell that's a huge number. And by the way, I know how to say this number. I looked it up. Uh 6, 231 quadrillion, 566 million, So it's a ridiculous number, okay? There's actually a number in math called the uh, I think it's the it's called the um, the value of absurdity, I think that's what they actually call it. And I think it's to the 15th power. Once you get past that, it may be higher than that, I can't remember. Once you get past that number, it's like the odds of things happening are just absurd. That's why they call it that. So, um, Anyway, so that's your. That's how you calculate these. If you say, well, how do these things get met? Like Jesus um, fulfilling these prophecies, he fulfilled at his first coming, over 300 of them, okay? Um, you can then do the math and see, well, what are the odds of this these prophecies being met by, by chance? So, Um, Also, when we're going back to seven, of course, uh, Jesus performs seven miracles on the Sabbath. Of course, we should uh, all—if you don't know what these are—I've listed them there. Jesus heals Simon Peter's what? Mother-in-law, right? Which means he was married. Not a lot of people know that. Um, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. This is when, of course, Jesus was angry because of their hearts being hardened. Boy, did they get on that! Mm-hmm. Jesus heals a, a man born blind. That's the third one. And of course, he wasn't blind because of their sin, of his sin. He was blind so that Jesus could heal him. <clears throat> Jesus heals a crippled woman. And of course, when he healed, the, when they healed the crippled woman, who got mad? Pharisees and of course they were the ones that were letting their donkeys drink water on the Sabbath so because it was the Sabbath Jesus heals a man with dropsy D-R-O-P-S-Y or edema it's like a swelling caused by the water apparently and that's number six Jesus drives out an evil spirit and of course the spirit showed like asked Jesus what do you want him to do because Jesus has authority even over the, the evil spirits so Jesus heals a lame man by the pull of Bethesda, and of course they were angry because of those works on the Sabbath as well. So in biblical numerology, the number seven represents perfection or completeness, you could say God. There's seven of a lot of different things, and of course we're going to see that in Revelation quite a bit, there's a lot of sevens in there. Okay, number eight. We've talked about number eight a little bit, a few times. God graciously selected eight people to preserve during the flood. And when I say graciously, he 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 did this, um, and didn't. Well, he didn't bring the flood until the literal oldest man in the world died. So he gave them a lot of time to could say repent or change their mind about, about god so <clears throat> and then god graciously saved eight people from the attack of the two female bears they anyone ever read this story it's kind of humorous but it's also kind of terrifying um so it's out of 2nd kings 2 it says 50 men let's write 50 it's right here i'll just write it up here we're gonna do some math really tough oh that's a terrible color but okay um Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite of them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. And then in 2 Kings 2, that was 2 Kings 2.7, this is 2 Kings 2.24, when the the climax of the story. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, because they were telling him, does anyone know what they were telling him? Go up, bald head. Yeah, they were basically saying, hey, why don't you go up like your your friend Elijah did, you know. Be raptured, bald head, because he was bald. And so, you don't make fun of bald people, that's what they were so, the two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42. Lads, what does that equal? <coughs> uh, hey. That is a terrible color. I'm going to be showing a on the video. But anyway. Here, just in case it doesn't. 50 minus 42. My math right? Good. There's the Bible math. Bible math. Okay, it always is. Alright, so... Again that's second Kings 2, if you want to find that interesting story. So in biblical numerology the number eight represents new beginnings. We've talked about how the, you know, the eight on the ark started their new beginning on the exact same day that Jesus had his new beginning and as a resurrected body and we could say our new beginning in him. <clears throat> so some examples of some of these how these numbers are used. I'm just going to go through some of these. Jesus was buried on the 14th of Nisan. Which was today? Yesterday, technically, 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So that would have been today's technically the 15th of Nissan. So, what happens this weekend? Huh? Resurrection. I thought you said church. <laughs> <laughs> You're not You're wrong. That's right. All right, yeah, resurrection, right? So three days and three nights after <laughs> yesterday, or sorry, today. You're right. It, today's yeah, today's a uh, Passover. So. Um, technically it's Thursday But yeah. anyway sorry Uh, let's see Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights and of course Jesus was buried I'm going to go back to that he was buried on the 14th of Nisan of course that's Passover and of course Jesus fulfilled that as the Passover lamb which we've already talked about numerous times Uh, John 19.14 is the day of preparation for the Passover it was about the 6th hour and Pilate said behold your king so he, the, the lamb was presented. You know. So you shall keep the lamb until the 14th day of the same month, for the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill them at twilight. No, kill it at twilight. Exodus twelve six. That's an interesting passage. You see the congregation of Israel killing one thing, but they all had their own lamb. You see what I mean? Everyone had a lamb for themselves, but the passage says it. So it's like one lamb, because there's one lamb that fulfills it all. Uh, Jesus was in the tomb again, three days, three nights. There's their three. Jesus was re- resurrected on the 17th of Nisan. I'm just pointing that out because that's this weekend. When does the 17th of Nisan start? Saturday night, Saturday night 6 p.m., right? 6-ish. Sundown. Daylight saving, I don't think. Really. Anyway, all right, so in the 17th month, 7th. Oh, Noah's Ark rested on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th of Nisan. put that there. Um, so... When you see dates and numbers in the Bible, try to find where they match up. You'll find some really neat stuff. Noah's Ark rested there on the 17th. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the Ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. So when someone says, Where's the mountain of Ararat? Well, there's several of them. So Genesis 8. Um, According to Jewish tradition, the crossing of the Red Sea is believed to have been on the 17th of Nisan as well. So you could say the Israelites' new beginning. Jesus' new beginning. Noah's new beginning. Mankind's new beginning. It's a, it's a, keep nice on thing. So, <clears throat> also in their flight after Passover, Israel retrieved the body of, who? Joseph. Joseph. From his tomb. What does that make you think of? After Passover, Jesus was retrieved from another, Joseph's tomb. Hmm. Oh, no, that was my watch for a second. That happens all the time. I'm surprised my watch hasn't started, Siri hasn't started answering me. Um, that happens at really bad times. Anyway, okay. So, did you catch that the Joseph thing? Isn't that kind of neat? All right, seventy times seven. So, in the in the Hebrew, when you say seventy or seventy uh, weeks, like in the Daniel nine prophecy, the way you say it in Hebrew is seventy sevens, seventy shabuim. This is the word, but uh, you would say seventy sevens. It's almost like saying dozens in English, but it's sevens. So the Babylonian captivity was a punishment of how many years? Seventy years for not keeping the Sabbath for the land. How many uh, years was the Sabbath of the land supposed to be held? That was that was a set that was seventy Sabbaths during a period of what's 70 times seven? 490. Right. So from the birth of Abraham to the Exodus was oh, guess what? 490 years. That takes a little bit of work because sometimes you'll see, oh, it's 482 years. But then you'll realize that there were were seven other years accounted for later. And it all adds up. It's weird. It all adds up 490. So from the exodus to the dedication of Solomon's temple is guess what? 490 years. And that's, uh, if you want to look this stuff up, it's from number 3, Leviticus 25. 2 Chronicles 36. My favorite book, Jeremiah. 25, not really. 25, 11 to 12. Okay, so number four, the dedica- What do you think? The dedication of Solomon's temple to the decree to restore Jerusalem was 490 years. And what is Daniel's 70-week prophecy total? 490 years, right. So the discrete that's the decree, that's number five, the decree to restore Jerusalem to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, which not all this stuff has happened yet. Because how many years have been fulfilled of that? 483. 483. 483. Right. Um, So we still have how many years left? Seven Seven years. So he basically said, you've got 490 years until the decree to restore Jerusalem until the end of time. But I'm not going to tell you about the church. Okay, that's kind of how it happened. so. Um, So we're in this little pause right now, where the clock has stopped, you could say, and the seven last seven years hasn't started yet. Uh, seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, that's Daniel 9, 24, if you want to look that up. Verse number six, Jesus even says in uh, Matthew 18, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And of course, Jesus said, what? I say to you, up to seven. not up to seven times, but to seventy times seven. He said 490 times. Interesting. All right. Now, I'm going to kind of go fast because we've got a lot to cover real quick. We're going to talk about hidden messages now. This is a a phenomenon or a part of the Scripture, especially the Old Testament. And there's some stuff in the New Testament, too. It's one of those things that's kind of like you could argue that, well, it's just coincidence. It's just because, you know, you get a whole bunch of letters together and you can make anything happen. Uh, I'm going to show you some interesting reason why that's possibly not true, but it still could be. So I'm going to let you decide for yourself. I'm just going to present this to you. I'm not going to say, hey, this is the Bible code. But if I, if I say Bible code, I'm not talking about that book by, I can't remember his name, but it's, he's an atheist. It's a famous book, but it's not what I'm talking about. So encryption is one of my favorite things to talk about in my field. Um, it means to conceal information so that it can only be revealed using a predetermined solution. so You don't have to write this down again. I'm going to kind of fly through this. Hidden messages. So there's several different ways you can hide messages. I'm just going to show, go run through a few of these. Steganography is where you just hide things in text, in pictures, um, in sounds. You can actually take a a song on a computer and hide a message in the audio file. You can't hear anything different about it. It's hidden in there. Pictures like that cat right there. One of them is uh, Uh, By the way that text right there it will show you you take the second letter of each word you get that message so um, You can decode that later. I guess you could say or decrypt that if you want So the image there is two cats. Which one has the hidden image in it? Can't tell can you? That's that's kind of how steganography works, but if you take a program that pulls information out of images like that Then you get a message kind of hard to read there, but it says uh, "If You know what you're looking for meet me at second main at 9 p.m. Tomorrow and come along so, <clears throat> you can do video, audio, and network, hide things in network information. Um, cryptography. I don't want to stay on a lot of these topics too long because it's, I don't want to derail, us, but, I, but you need to kind of understand how hidden messages work so we can go, go into this. So, cryptography, you've probably heard these words before. If you work in IT or similar like encryption or security fields, you've definitely heard them. Um, there are codes. Codes are predetermined messages. So I brought my flashlight to show you one of the most simple predetermined messages. So, how many know what Paul Revere's signal was? One if by land. One what? A light, a flash, right? So he was standing there and, or not a flashlight, a flash right is what I meant. This is a flashlight. So, sorry. Um, He didn't have have this. Uh, So he was standing there and and, uh, waiting for the, I think it was the Old North Church. Um, He was waiting for a signal that the British were to be coming if by land, one is by land, one flash of light, or two if by sea. If someone else that didn't know about that message saw a light flash, what do you think they'd think? That has to be because the British are coming, right? No. Would they ever be able to figure that out? If they had a computer, could flash they figure it out? Huh? It'd just be a flash of light. It'd just be a flash of light, right. You have a predetermined message. You've got two people that say, hey, if I flash the light once, they're by land. If I flash the light twice... Wanted to bring this because it's my—it's not even working. So, <laughs> that's probably meant to be. All right. Um, so that was Paul River signal. So that's a predetermined message. So to have a—there you go. To yeah. have a code message, you have to have people. You have to have a predetermined signal. And guess what? DNA itself has code built into it. There's four, four to five letters. I think they added a new one recently. Um, that symbolize the pro, or the symbolize the uh, amino acids in, involved in the DNA chain. That if you, when you take DNA and RNA and you synthesize proteins with it, um, it literally is like running code through a like a like the old tapes on computers. How many are old enough to remember those? The old tapes, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you run these tapes through a computer and it reads the code. That's exactly what DNA does, in a really really microscopic level. So. There's a code message. So who programmed it? Who who set up the code? God. How do you know what these four letters mean? Because it's yeah, God set this up. So, um, so that's what a predetermined message is. You've got Germany's Enigma sick message. You know, you've got all these random letters. How many know what the Enigma was? Anyone? There's a movie about it. Um, what is that movie called? It's about Alan Turing and when he basically cracked the uh, Enigma code. Um, it's a really good movie. But, um, oh. Well, there was Project Ultra. He was involved in Project Ultra, so they just dis- they deciphered the code, but they couldn't tell everybody because then Germany would change the code. So they had to conceal as much as they can, but break codes enough to where the Germans wouldn't get suspicious. And that was Project Ultra. It was one of the biggest uh, secret, one of the most secret projects in history. Uh, magic victory over Japan's Purple Code. They actually revealed the date and time of the Pearl Harbor attack, but no one believed them. So, but, you know. Anyway, um, that's an interesting story. I'm gonna look into that. Ciphers, uh, transpositions. Sky t- transposition cipher is when you just simply move things around, move letters around. Um, so a sky tail I was gonna bring one to show you, but you can make a sky tail, It's fun. You just take a long strip of tape or paper, and you just write a bunch of, and you wrap it around something like a water bottle or something you. Can, Usually it was a, a staff or something that these people had. They would wrap it around the staff, and then the letters would line up, and you'd have a message written on it, just like this little picture here. Send help. That's what it says, by the way. Not send. fu or yeah, help. It says send help. So that's skytail, but it's really easy to crack, obviously. So there's another one called rail fence. Uh, you got your cipher text, which is your encoded text, and then once you uh, line those up a certain way and um, you have your keyword there, which is darkly. I know none of this may not make sense right now. It's okay. We'll talk about it later. I just don't have much time. Um, you take the word darkly, you alphabetize it, and then that gives you the sequence in which you add these letters up. And then if you notice what it says there at the bottom, Cinderella, be home before midnight. There. So you can figure that out later. It's, it's a lot of fun to do cryptography, find through hidden message. I have a picture of me and my son doing a, a Cardano grill, which is what this is, by the way. Uh, we'll talk about, I'll, don't ever figure this out, okay, I'll talk about that in a minute. Substitution, that's when you take letters and you substitute them for other letters. That's actually what we use today in our encryption on, for web browsing, SSL, stuff like that. Um, DES, a, uh, AES, stuff like that, codes are used for a really quick substitution. It's a very complicated, but monoalphabetic, alphabetic Caesar cipher there. You have a ciphertext, and then the plain text. So plain text is what you can read. We're going to call the Bible the plain text because you can read it, and it makes sense. Code that or text that you read that doesn't make sense is typically code because it's encrypted, right? Okay, so does does everyone understand what plain text is? and encrypted text, okay? Let's make sure because I'm gonna say those words a lot. So if you notice ciphertext there, it's just one on one mapping. That's uh, where you take the letter and um, well, on the ciphertext for Caesar, it's, uh, I think you just take the letter back a couple. You have to have a key and then you pick how many spaces you want. Well, on the, well, on the Caesar one, though, all you do is you just take a letter back one. Or is it two, one or? I thought it was 13. Maybe it's 13. Yeah, this is a fascinating book. That's what the ciphertext says if you move those letters into the, and they all move the exact same amount. So that one's kind of easy to break, too. But you typically don't put your ciphertext in the form of the plain text. You just put it in, like, blocks. So it doesn't. It's not obvious that this is four letters is two. You see what I mean? So one-on-one mapping is kind of the same way. It's when you you take your plain text and then you uh, you just line it up with the different alphabet. So you typically have a book with the different al- code book, basically. Then you have the Cardano grill, This is this one that my son and I are making one right there. If you look, I I just took a hole punch. For what I did first, did you see the you see the does it show up very well? Or is it just is it mm-hmm. kind of hard to see? Okay. So. Um, if you see on that right piece of paper there, I just wrote a bunch of letters, but actually I didn't do that first. What I did was I cut out the holes, and then I wrote a message on the paper, and then I took the grill off, or the thing with the holes on it, and then I wrote a bunch of letters around it. Okay, so if you put the grill over it, it says "I love my babies." So that's my son sitting there figuring it out and teaching him how to do encryption. So that was a lot of fun. So that's what this is, I'll just show you real quick. This is a Cardano grill, but if you notice, I made it really tough because I wrote every letter about the same way, and you can't tell if that's an I or an H, but that's actually an I. And what you have to do is take this grill, and you, you have one for yourself, and then you give one to your partner on the other end, or the spy, or whoever you're sending your message to. And then you send this to them, and then the light, they're not gonna know what this means, hopefully. Um, it's kind of once you start figuring that this is a Cardano grill, though, then it kind of becomes easier. So, but if you notice, I'm trying to remember which way I had it. Yeah, yeah I can't even figure it out. You huh? a salt said You a salt will Get you one nugget each they don't have chicken stretch right now. How I many have kids that that's upsetting right now? All right, um, I'll figure this out. It's hard to figure this stuff out. But, uh, okay, that's not it. And, uh, oh, here we go. So here it is, how many can read that? I-N-A-L-L-T-H-E-S-C-R-I-P-T-U-R-E-S and all the scriptures. okay, And that's your Cardano grill. So I'm going to leave it right here. Not touch it. Hopefully it doesn't move. No, and that's how you do that. So, equidistant letter sequence is the next one. And that's the one... Actually, DNA operates kind of similarly with an equidistant letter sequence. So it's kind of interesting that when we look at DNA... Deeper and deeper we go, we see sophistication behind it. There's even, if you're into IT or coding or programming, you know what parity is or error correcting? DNA has its own error correcting bits. It's really neat stuff. So, equidistant letter sequence is simply taking letters and I'm going to erase this purple and mess behind me. Um, so, if you say, well, I've got an example right there, I'm not even going to write it down. So, similar to Cardano Girl Cipher, but Fixed Letter Sequence. So it's not really a code to hide, it's really a code to authenticate, um, and we'll talk about that. So, you have a fixed sequence letter of skipped letters, not very good for secrecy, but can be used to authenticate a source. So their ciphertext says, well, and I wrote this one, well, just leave us, beam up these. I mean, it doesn't make much sense, but if you knew that the code were or the key was five, you take every fifth letter, and what do you get? Jesus. So that's that's how it works. That's equidistant letter sequences. That being said, are there hidden messages in the Bible? This is a really tough question to talk about because people will immediately just get mad. No, there can't be. Well, okay, that's fine if you feel that way. Um, what about things we've already talked about, like these types, these the akida, the you know all these things in the Bible that are mysteries? And then revealed later in the New Testament were those are those hidden messages? Technically, there's actually a verse by, in Proverbs twenty by two that's kind of interesting. It says, "It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, or hide a matter, or you could say encrypt a matter. You know, hide something. But the glory of kings to search out a matter." And that's, I just thought that was kind of neat, so I threw that in there. Um, So why would God hide messages in the Bible? Let's say there are hidden messages. Well, first of all, the ones we've already looked at are technically hidden because we didn't, I mean, how many knew all the messages we've talked about are in the Bible? There's a lot of stuff that's like, oh, I didn't know it was there, because it was what? It was hidden, right? Um, And then the Holy Spirit reveals things about the Scripture all the time. So uh, if you're not a believer, everything in the Scripture is really hidden to you. It doesn't make sense, right, to an unbeliever. Until the Holy Spirit eventually reveals it to you. So, um, so why would God hide messages in the Bible? Well, two reasons to authenticate the author, or basically prove who the author is, and to glorify him. We're going to show how some of these work because they're really neat. Um, I don't want you to go home and start getting obsessed about Bible codes. Um, because there's some dark, there's, there's some, it's a rabbit hole, okay? Because there's a lot of people out there that find this stuff and they believe it's true, but they're not believers and then they start doing really bad things with it. So um, so what is considered hidden? Well, types, like we've already talked about. Symbolism is technically hiding things. I mean, when you have something that symbolizes something else and then like you've got a serpent on a pole to heal your people with snake bites. What does that mean? And then what, 2,000 years later, Jesus says, oh, that was me. That was, that was me on the pole. I'm, I'm you know... So that symbolized me, is what he's saying. So that's a concealed code, you could say, or a concealed message revealed later by Jesus. So prophecies, technically, some prophecies, especially Revelation. How many think there's hidden messages in Revelation? Just a few, right? Um, And then, of course, codes. So we're going to talk really quickly about some of these. If you want to talk about it after we can. Um, There was a rabbi in the 16th century that said, his name was Moses, of he said the secrets of the torah or the first five books of the bible are revealed in the skipping of letters that was something he said so i want you to think about something though rather than just finding random, you can take any book and look through it any you can take a dictionary for goodness sakes and just find little words and you know crossword puzzles are like that you were taking a crossword puzzle and found words that are in it but aren't in your little list I mean, that happens all the time, right? Well, I'm going to talk to you about that, but it's also clustered with the plain text. Remember I said plain text was what the Bible says. You've got, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the plain text. Well, encoded behind it is something else that fits what that Genesis passage says, okay? So we're going to talk about that. So, first of all, we're going to talk about what's called the Torah codes. This is kind of interesting. So you got, in the first book of, in the first book of the Torah... At an interval of 50. Now that's interesting, because 50 is one of those numbers in the Bible that's significant. What does 50 mean? Pentecost. Uh, many things happened on that day too. So, um, so if it was like 68, it's like, well, I can't think of anything that means 68 except six and eight. Anyway, um, but 50 is significant. So if you take the first, that's the first five verse or first five lines of. Genesis. That's Genesis one. Well, no, that's that's not Genesis one. One. That's one. It might be one, one through uh, five, I think maybe. But anyway, so if you notice, I hi- does the highlight show up on there? Is it not. Okay, I didn't think so. So if you take the first letter of what the word for Torah in the Hebrew, which I have it written there past interval of fifty, that's the Hebrew word for Torah. Of course, right to left, you got the Tau, which is the sound for T you got the vav, and then you've got the resh, which looks like a backwards lowercase r. So it kind of looks like a... And then you've got the heg, which looks kind of like an h. So in a way, it kind of looks like Torah, but that's the Hebrew word for Torah. So tau, vav, resh, heg. Um, if you find the first uh, going backwards, or which which is forward in the Hebrew language... We've got to think backwards here, I right know. Um, if you go to the first Tau and go fifty letters, you find a Vav. If you go fifty more letters, you find a resh. If you go fifty more letters, you find a hey. So you find the word Torah. Big deal, right? Okay. Think about that. First, first book. Let me go to Exodus. The same thing happens. You go to the first tau, you find fifty, 50 letters, you find a vav, and then you find a resh, and then you find a hey. Again. Interesting. Leviticus, that doesn't happen, but we're going to get back to that. Okay, so numbers, book of Numbers. It's an interval of 49 this time, which is another significant number. It's 49 days, and then the 50th is Pentecost. So a, 49 is a multiple of 7, um, 7 times 7, and then, uh, but, but it's also significant with Pentecost and the other feasts. So, um, interval of 49, going the opposite direction, or backwards in Hebrew, you get the word Torah again. Okay? Everyone caught up with me so far? I'm going to illustrate it on the next page. Well, you might have it on that page. It might be the next page. But, now go to Deuteronomy, and guess what? Interval of 49, the same thing happens. So you've got Torah forward in Genesis, Torah forward in Exodus, Leviticus I'm going to get back to. You've got Torah backwards in Numbers, you got Torah backwards in Deuteronomy. So it's kind of like this. You've got this going on, right? What do you think happens in Leviticus? In an interval of what do you think? Seven. What do you think you get? Yad hey vav hey. What does that mean? That's the word for God, right? That's the name of God. So, skip over to that little picture after that. What does it all mean? So, I want you to write Torah above that far left fifty. You can write T R. You could write just Torah, Torah, sorry. (laughs) Um, Torah, and then what's the next one? Torah, and then the middle there is God, or YHWH, and then the next one is Torah backwards, and the next one is Torah backwards. What does that mean to you? Everything points to God. Everything points to God, thank you. Or the Torah points to God, or, I mean, you might as well say everything points to God, because everything is pointing at the middle. And, of course, what's the number, The, the sequence? Seven. Okay. Pretty cool, right? We're going to keep going. Some of this stuff is kind of neat. So we're going to talk about the, the value of pi. There's a lot of criticism in this first Kings passage about this, the measurement of some of Solomon's uh, uh, furniture for the temple, like the, the bronze laver, the big basin. So if you read it in English, and of course I got a tweet there from Neil deGrasse Tyson where he's making fun of the Bible. Okay, he says the Bible's best estimate for pi is 3.0. Which what is what is pi? 3.1415 and it d- 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 goes on forever. So 3.0 is wrong. You can't calculate anything with 3.0 as pi. So if you read 1 Kings 7:23 in English, it says he made it ten cubits from brim to brim, uh, circular in form, and its height five cubits, which doesn't really matter, but thirty cubits in circumference. So what he's saying, what the what the English is saying. Here, I think it needs to be about 5 inches further out here. Alright, so what it's saying there is that the it is, what was it, uh, 10 cubits. Yeah, 10 cubits here and 30 going around. Now, does that work? Is that a math error? Any math people in here? How do you calculate the circumference of something? Pi times r squared, or pi times the diameter. So that should be pi. So, in Hebrew, when the, when the rabbis would and the scribes would copy the text, they wouldn't change anything. You know, If they messed up, they'd throw it away, burn it, and all that. So what they would do, if they thought there was a problem or an error, they would just write it out to the size and the margin and put it in parentheses. And if you notice in that picture there, that is this passage... In Hebrew, and in the little parentheses down there is the word for circumference that they thought it should be. They're like, this should be the word for circumference, but the word above it, if you notice, it's the same word. But what's on the end there? It's the hey symbol, right? The symbol for spirit or spirit of God, basically. So what they, what you do is they just say, well, this is what we think it is, but this is what it actually says. So now. Let's do the math in that next section. If you take the numerical value for these two words, for the, for the one that's in the Bible, it's 111, or the stated value. If you take the numerical value for the one in parentheses, or the one that they wrote off to the side, it's 106. Now, if you take the ratio of two and, and do the pi calculation times three, what do you get? You get pi down to 10,000th of a, or the, or the to the 10,000th value. So you don't get three, you get 3.141, which is actually more cal- more accurate than the current pi calculation at that time to like the the, the, uh, the uh, uh, Egyptians and so forth. So coincidence maybe, who knows? But if you assume that 1.5 feet or 18 inches is a cubit, you can get the exact measurement of his basin, which was about 47 feet in diameter. So <clears throat> kind of neat. All right, now Jesus in the codes. This is why we are talking about this. So Genesis 1.1, I'm talking about math, (laughs) oneone talking about pi too much. Genesis 1.1 says what? Teaching it to my youngest right now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Encrypted behind it, it says Yeshua, or Jesus, is able. I'm just going to throw these out there. They're kind of neat. They may just be coincidence. I'm going to let you guys decide that. I'm not going to try to make you think this all is legit, but it's, it's kind of neat because it points to Jesus. Genesis 3. This is when God killed the animals and wrapped um, Ab- uh, Adam and Eve in skins to cover their sin, or to cover their bodies, but um, in a way covering sin by the death of an animal. Behind that is something that's kind of reflected in Matthew 1.21. He will save. Matthew 1.21 says, when. Uh, she will bear a son. You should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So it's kind of neat. All right, Zechariah 11:12. This is where the betrayal price of 31 pieces of silver is predicted or prophesied. Uh, behind that is predicted is is encrypted Yeshua or Jesus, which again, Jesus is just the word for salvation. So, it could just be, well, salvation is just a common word, so it doesn't mean anything. But we're going to talk about that too. Ruth opens with Yeshua, or Jesus. Daniel 9. Yeshua. this? Uh, Yeshua, or Jesus, or salvation. Isaiah 52. What is this? 13 through 53, 12. This is the... It starts out with, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted and greatly exalted, just as many were. Now, this whole passage is describing someone. Okay? He, over and over again. If you talk to Orthodox Jewish people not believing in Jesus, they will tell you that this represents Israel, or this represents another Messiah. They've actually got two Messiahs, they think, now. um, Two different people. Anyway, uh, one's a servant, one's a king. You can't have both, but, well, you can. It's Jesus, right? So they don't understand that. Not all Jews, just the non-believing ones. Um, so this passage is, of course, the one that talks about who our suffering servant is. Who has believed our message? Who are the, who's, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a tender shoot. Who is this person? Who do you think it is? Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet he himself esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. The Lord has caused the who is Who in the world is this person? Um, He was oppressed and afflicted, did not open his mouth. We all know who this is, right? Okay, good. It's kind of quiet. I was kind of hoping we did. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. So what do you think is uh, encrypted behind this passage? Just this passage. Yeshua is my name. So when you ask who is this, there's your answer. I think. I personally believe that if something points to Jesus in the Bible, no matter how you see it, it's, it's something to, you know, consider. So, you may not think that. That's fine. No problem. This is just kind of, these are some neat things. One more example. This one's kind of neat. You Remember we talked about the Hamoyedim for three days, actually. Uh, what does the Hamoyedim mean? Does anyone remember? This is one of my favorite uh, examples, by the way. God's appointed times, right, or seasons, Right. So, the word doesn't, isn't used that often, but um, of course we spent three lessons on it, uh, talking about all the feasts. Genesis 1.14 says, this is the passage where the word Hemoyadim is first used. It says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, that's the word, and for days and years. Okay, so does anyone remember how many festivals of Moses there were? Seven, okay. How many, let's add this up. Let's just write seven. Let's make a math problem. Everyone's like, I didn't sign up for this. Um, How many total festivals of Israel exist, remember? Nine, Nine, right. So write that down. Let's add this. This is going to be an addition problem, by the way. How many Sabbaths are there based on Leviticus uh, 23? Okay, remember there were weekly Sabbaths. How many of those were there? Okay, I'm sorry. Let's... Okay, the seven and the nine, this is when the math problem starts. Sorry, take out the seven and the nine. I was just asking that. So we're going to, I'm sorry, start here. So there were 52, right? 52. And of course, the the days of the Sabbath for for Passover were seven, right? You got Passover, unleavened bread, and then first fruits. That's seven total days there. And then you got the festival of weeks. That's one day. So 52 plus seven plus one. Festival of Trumpets is how many days? One. It's two now, but it was one then. Day of Atonement is how many days? One day. It's Day of Atonement. Festival of Tabernacles is how many days? Seven. And then the last uh, eighth day of assembly after Tabernacles is called the Shemini Atzeret. It's one day. So what do you get? 70. Seventy. Very good. Okay. Now this is where it gets interesting. Out of 78,000 approximate letters in Genesis, this word "hamoyadim" in the code or in the encryption, the equidistant letter sequences, uh, happens one time. Can you guess where it happens? The 70th word. Huh? The 70th word? Nope. Well, okay, hold on. Genesis one fourteen. So if you take Genesis one fourteen, the passage about hamoyadim or seasons, and behind that, if you, if you look, the word "hamoyadim" is encrypted there. Now, can anyone guess... What letter interval? How many letters do you have to skip to find it? centered on this passage, by the way. 70. 70. Good job. All right. So what's interesting is the only time homoedem is found in Genesis in the code, I'd say, is here in this passage about the homoedem. And it's not every fifth letter, every twelfth letter, every twenty-fifth letter. It's literally every 70th letter. So there's 70... Appointed times, seventy letters. Is that coincidence? I'll let you decide that. All right. So, by the way, if you do the math, which is fun, <coughs> it's about seventy million to one. There's a book about that. All. It's called "Cracking the Bible Code." Seventy million to one for that to happen by chance. So, all right. So chances, there's really there's no apocryphal books, by the way, that contain these codes. It's only in the inspired text. And the clustering with the relevant plain text, there are tons of these messages. I, I don't have time to go over them all. Um, there are tons of these messages in Scripture, and they all are focused, they all match up with the plain text. So it's not like just finding random words and, oh, well, this talks about Jesus back here. If you go to the passage where God creates all the plants, what day was that? Five? He created the plants. Or no, was it three? Day six as well, was, it, was it six? Yeah. Plant? Okay, okay. Well, on the day he created all the plants was that passage about all the trees and everything. And if you take that and go and look at the code behind it, it lists every single tree in the Bible, just there. Is that coincidence? Kind of neat. So if it's coincidence, fine. If it's not, well, it's kind of neat. But what they what what you do with that is, and here we are at the summary. So what you do with that is, you should just realize, wow, this book is more than just what just a book. It's literally a supernatural. Book, we, we say that, but we don't really understand. I don't think we can never really grasp the secrets in this book. There's so much in this that you know we, we, we say we could understand the whole Bible, but it, it if these codes are a real thing, if they're not, it's not a big deal. It's kind of neat that they all seem to glorify Jesus, point to Jesus, glorify God, and authenticate Him. It's like you, you want to prove the Bible's true, there's a lot of ways to do it. This is just one of those other ways that, to me, anyway. All right, so, um. You don't have to prove to anyone the Bible. true. So the Holy Spirit does that for you. But okay, so summary. Got a few minutes here. Numbers show meaning in the scriptures and can help the reader understand more in various ways. Are the hidden message in the Bible? Are there okay? Are the hidden messages in the Bible that authenticate the author, reveal and glorify Jesus? I'll say this again in case I go too fast and display God's sovereignty intentionally placed there? Placed there? That's a question I'm going to leave you to worry about yourself. Again, I'm not going to try to make you believe anything. This is just something that's there. It's been peer-reviewed by tons of Christians and non-Christians, and many people believe it's a real thing, and I just went over a couple of them. Um, but I'll, again, I'll let you decide that. That's between you and the Lord, and you can just go home and go, that was a bunch of, you know... Bleepity bleep that Jeremiah talked about. Um, I hope you don't say it like that. But uh, or you can you know realize that this Bible is more than what just text. Um, it's it's a message from our Lord. So understand that the Bible is supernatural, is of supernatural origin, from outside of time. And I say it's from outside of time because it reveals accurate history in advance. You know Daniel talks about things that happen. Many years later, you know, all the books do. Isaiah, Genesis, I mean, even Genesis. There's tons of stuff in there that, you know, the, the book is obviously not written by man. It's written by the hand of men, but it's also written by the hand of the Holy Spirit. So it's for every person. It reveals his love for us, and it's God's perfect message to humanity. Man could not have written that. And your memory verse is, of course, that Proverbs 25:2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter.